My name is Laura Dawn, and I am so thrilled to welcome you to season two of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. I'm kicking off this new season featuring a conversation with someone who is unabashedly unafraid of voicing his criticisms of the psychedelic movement, although he does it with a twist of hope. He is author of Recapture the Rapture, co-author of Stealing Fire, and founder of the Flow Genome Project. You might have guessed it, he's the one and only Jamie Wheel. Let's not forget, right, the psychedelic renaissance is taking place entirely within neoliberal, quasi-open market consumer society, which is late-stage capitalism and consumer society. Give me, you know, I've got an itch, I've got a scratch, I've got a pain, I've got a diagnosis, give me the pill, give me the hit, give me the fix. Right, so, so I think it's, I think without a doubt, I, I would take it to Vegas that we will end up with Prozac Nation 2.0 right we will end up with denatured faster acting psychedelics that strip out much of, as much of the misto as they can while still getting the clinical efficacy you know like it's really really important to be like on the one hand unlimited potential upside but on the other hand all sorts of unstructured squirreliness and the potential for for doom also uh, the medicalized psychedelic renaissance is going to do what it does as best as it can with all of these functions and, and, and mixed incentives baked into that system. But what really gives me the chance of doing something useful is the cultural context surrounding spiritualized use. Meaning, it doesn't have to be hierarchical religious systems and that kind of thing, but what does it mean to contact the numinous? And how do we make sense of it together? And what are the ethics and the stories and the guidelines and the context and the interpretations and the rituals, you know, and the customs that surround this experience and what ought we do with it? And then like that to me is a fascinating, deeply needed project. And if we get cracking on it, then we have a real chance at, at really creating a psychedelic renaissance that has not just double blind placebo control stats behind it but actually has the the depth and the breadth of being held in an appropriate cultural container yeah well i want to be clear right like my cynicism and at times even outright contempt is not for the deeper human project consciousness project cosmos project at all right like i have i have deep commitment to that work Right. And so that would be my sense, too, is that the, the arguably the best place to hold all of this power and potentiality is not to try and grasp it and manipulate it for any goal, no matter how seemingly noble, is to just kind of bear witness to it as also a part of this human experience and to hold it loosely and to return to love and service. Like that to me feels like a really good center point. Like, let's go out and bear witness to the beauty of being alive on this earth while we still have the privilege and, and, and the opportunity to do so. So I have to admit, releasing this particular conversation with Jamie Wheel as the first episode for season two feels a little risky. Some of you might be thinking, whoa, this is a lot of cynicism to be throwing down on the table right from the get-go. So trust me, I get it. 
but it also felt right because I want to dive in and explore some of the more difficult conversations and some of the more challenging topics that are surfacing in the psychedelic space right now. And as some of you know, Jamie holds some very strong perspectives, to put it mildly, about the pitfalls of the psychedelic movement. And I know a lot of people who love and respect his work and also a lot of people who feel very averse to the way he communicates some of his message. So to each their own, and regardless if you resonate or not, Jamie has a brilliant mind and I don't think he's totally off base. And I've seen Jamie keynote a few times now, including at the Business Day event prior to the Horizons conference that just happened back in December. And that day had a very specific tone to it, including a very strong underlying message, really a message that we need to be cluing into as, and just think about this, hundreds of millions of dollars are now flooding into the psychedelic space. And so the message is that we seriously need to reorient ourselves around a more ethical inner compass. And so just as a brief side note here that is absolutely pertinent and worth mentioning, Liana Giluli from MAPS hosted most of that day, uh, the Business Day at Horizons, and she's one of the founders of what they call the North Star Pledge, which if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend giving it a read and signing that pledge. It's a really good place to start, especially if you're doing business in the psychedelic space. And I'll include a link to the North Star Pledge in the show notes. And if you're paying attention to what's happening in the psychedelic space, it's pretty hard to ignore that right now there's just this palpable overzealousness. <laughs> like it's, it's, there's, I've been having this conversation with so many people right now. And so in some ways we need this kind of anchoring rod and Jamie speaks quite boldly, I might add, to the pitfalls we need to be aware of and speaks to the medicalization of psychedelics and what he calls Pharma 2.0. And there's so much that he speaks to that I do agree with. And he has a level of maybe cynicism and judgment that's honestly a little hard for me to get down with, just in all honesty because I do fundamentally believe in the goodness of the human spirit. And I also believe that we can communicate our message clearly with respect and kindness. And so actually when I first met Jamie at Horizons in December, that was pretty much the first thing that I lovingly expressed to him. I was like, Jamie, I love your work, big fan. I think you might be overly cynical. And then I invited him to come onto the show and hash out some of these super tricky, very nuanced topics with me. And I truly believe that it is so helpful. I mean, talk about the medicine of our time. It is beneficial to actually have open-minded, open-hearted conversations with people who we don't wholeheartedly agree with. And can you stay open to varying opinions? Can you find some truth in what that person might be saying, even just as a mental exploration, right? Just even playing with it. And right now it feels like 
everyone's got a freaking opinion about how this thing should go down, right? It's like there are some people holding some very strong beliefs in the psychedelic space and the medicine communities, right? So, you know, just listening and staying open and seeing what happens and let's build bridges, you know, let's be the bridge builders in this space. So with that said, I do totally get so much of Jamie's perspective. You know, the mainstreaming of psychedelics and the stripping of the sacred from sacred plant medicines is hard for many of us to watch. And I'll just acknowledge that that's not the whole story. And there are so many people doing such incredible work out there. People that I know and that I love and respect. And so, you know, just acknowledging that it is a full spectrum experience out there these days. So I put Jamie on the spot quite a bit and, you know, challenging his judgments and gently pointing out some of his mild hypocrisy that I noticed. And he was such a gracious guest and someone who I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with. And I actually hope to have him back on the podcast again. And honestly, under the cynicism is actually a lot of love and care and hope for humanity. So I want to highlight that aspect of the conversation as well. And the longer we spoke, the more I laughed. And by the end of the conversation, I was just cracking up because honestly, at the end of the day, you just can't talk about almost anything that's happening out there, quote unquote, out there without seeing the ironic humor in it all. And if you don't see the humor in it, I recommend shifting perspectives and taking yourself a hell of a lot less seriously. And I always think of my friend James McRae, who titled his last book, How to Laugh in Ironic Amusement During Your Existential Crisis. Yes, it's like that. That hits the nail on the head. And this conversation really impacted me. It's been really up in my field, in my awareness, pretty much all week. And more than anything, it's actually inspired me to think about hope and what hope means to me. And it inspired me to go back and read through some of Rebecca Solnit's book called Hope in the Dark, which, oh my goodness, it, that is such a good book. If you haven't read that yet, I so highly recommend it. I'll include a link to her book in the show notes. And I want to share this paragraph with you and just highlight a couple of quotes. She says, Hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. When you recognize uncertainty, you recognize that you may be able to influence the outcomes, you alone or you in concert with a few dozen or several million others. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. Optimists think it will all be fine without our involvement. Pessimists take the opposite position. Both excuse themselves from acting. It's the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact are not things we can know beforehand. I just love that passage and also this quote that I come back to all the time. And it reads, inside the word emergency is the word emerge. From an emergency, new things come forth. The old certainties are crumbling fast but danger and possibility are sisters. 
And she also says, changing the story isn't enough in itself, but it has often been foundational to real changes. And so what are the stories that you are telling yourself about this time of change that we are moving through? And I'm so curious to know, what is your relationship with hope right now? As she says, action is impossible without hope. We need hope. And of course, I am so curious to hear your thoughts and reflections about Jamie's perspective on the psychedelic movement and where you stand. What's the narrative that you're holding right now? Okay, so just a couple of minor mentions and exciting announcements before we dive in. I just released my brand spanking new website that looks truly phenomenal, if I do say so myself. My whole team and I worked incredibly hard on this website and the new branding, and I really genuinely wanted to create something unlike anything I've ever seen before that was just really unique to me, and I really truly think that we accomplished that goal. So I would love for you to check it out. And I wish I could have gotten the domain lauradon.com. Just has such a nice ring to it. And it also had a price tag of $50,000. So needless to say, I, I was feeling ready to upgrade from livefreelauradee.com and use my name. So we settled on lauradon.co. So I'd love for you to check out the new site. And each episode has a beautiful landing page so all the resources that get mentioned in this intro and any references that jamie or any of my other guests make in their conversations that we have they all get put on the solo episode landing page so for this episode you can find that at lauradon.co forward slash 42. So it's very simple, all the episodes, it's just the domain and then the slash and then the number of the episode. And I also have a downloads tab, lauradon.co forward slash downloads, where you can find in-depth written guides on topics like plant medicine integration. And I just re-released an upgraded version of 45 questions to vet your shaman, which is becoming increasingly necessary these days for reasons that Jamie Will will be pointing out in this conversation. Also, I am so thrilled to announce that I am launching a seven-week program with The Shift Network called Weaving Wisdom Traditions with the Science of Psychedelics for Resilience, Inspiration, and Open-Hearted Living. And that program starts February 24th, and you can find the link to sign up to that in the show notes. Also, I am launching a program that I've had in the works for a very long time. I've had a lot of requests from women to launch a female-focused mastermind program. And so I'm launching a 12-week psychedelic leadership mastermind for medicine women, entrepreneurs, healers, leaders, and creatives. And this program is called Your Message is Your Medicine. And it's really all about women coming together to support other women. And if you feel the call to step out and cultivate your psychedelic leadership, you feel called to step out and 
really share your message and cultivate an offering in the psychedelic space. And you also feel terrified at the thought of doing that because let's just be honest, you know, when you step out with an offering, you have to face all of your fears, fears of being seen, fears of not good enough, fears of judgment, and that's real. And so if you are feeling the call to contribute and play some sort of supportive role in the psychedelic space, I would love to invite you to apply for this 12 week program. It is application only, and I'm also extending scholarships to folks in the BIPOC community who feel called to join. And you can access the link to learn about the program. There's really so much more to it in the show notes, or if you click on the programs tab on my website, lauradon.co, you'll find information about this program, your message is your medicine, as well as my seven week program launching with the shift network. So just like season one, for season two, I'm going to leave every episode off with a song. I actually made a playlist for season one psychedelic leadership songs, and you can get that on my website when you sign up for my four free playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond. One of those is now a bonus. There's actually five now, and you can get access to all the songs that I featured on season one. At the end of this episode, I'm gonna feature my dear sister and one of my favorite medicine musicians, Mary Isis. I'm featuring her song called Chosen Ones, and I do love this song so much. Also, this is a public service announcement. I like to use profane language on occasion. It's rare, but I do swear sometimes when it's called for there is some profane language in this episode. I recently had a woman emailing me, telling me that she was so inspired to listen to my podcast and then she heard me swear and that was it. She will never listen to it ever again and then proceeded to tell me about it in an email. And so, like I said in the response, you do you and I'll do me and we'll live happily ever after and I'll just put a warning label at the beginning of my episodes. Actually, I'm just gonna start hitting the explicit, the E. I never knew what that E stood for (laughs) at the front of podcast, but now I understand. So uh, swearing does happen on occasion and I'm not really sorry for it. I'm just unapologetically being myself. All right, without any further ado, here is my fascinating conversation with Jamie Wheel. Hi, Jamie. It's so nice to have you on the show here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me here today. Sure. All right. So I thought we would dive in um, to this topic of what we need to pay attention to, especially right now, as the psychedelic movement is moving quite rapidly. I'm kind of curious just to get your sentiment. If you were to take the pulse of the psychedelic movement in this moment in time, What's your read on the situation right now? Well, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of showing up precisely as you would expect it to. And if anybody's really curious, I, I've, there's few books or few ideas that I've gotten more repeat mileage out of as far as like a, a frame or a lens to lay over reality and have it kind of pop into helpful, helpful shorthands than uh, Tim Wu's book, The Master Switch. Tim Wu was the coiner of the term net neutrality. He was advisor to a couple of White Houses. He's a law professor at Columbia, I believe. And his whole idea was 
information technologies, whether it's the telegraph to the radio, to TV, to the internet, and you, and you can make a case that psychedelics are an information technology. They provide access to non-ordinary states of meaning-making, perception, information, et cetera. He said they, they, they follow a super duper predictable path. They start out utopian and decentralized. Yay, this is going to revolutionize everything. And they end up hegemonic and centrally controlled. Right, the, the Facebooks of, of you know, like from from the homebrew computer club back in the day, right? So, the question here is, almost have to falsify that statement, right? If that's been proven out time after time over centuries across industries, you're like, well, what if anything would make the psychedelic quote unquote renaissance any different from following that trend? And so far, we're not seeing a ton that's that different. We are seeing a move to consolidation. We are, and you know, and let's not forget, right? The psychedelic renaissance is taking place entirely within neoliberal quasi-open market consumer society so we would expect the kind of old wines and new bottles like we would expect that old wine of of epiphany of initiation of access to the mysteries of whatever it has been in the past to conform to the bottle it's in the container it's in which is late stage capitalism and consumer society, give me, you know, I've got an itch, I've got a scratch, I've got a pain, I've got a diagnosis, give me the pill, give me the hit, give me the fix, coded illness, reimbursements, co-pays, venture capital, return on, you know, return on IP, you know, that stuff. So while that stuff, I think, is far more inevitable and has far more inertia, you know, and just fundamentally mass and momentum going for it, than you would ever read in the BuzzFeed, Huff Poe, Wired Magazine, Fosco coverage of psychedelic renaissance, like, yay, it's going to fix everybody and heal everybody, lickety split, which has real truth to it. The studies are amazing. It's a super encouraging way to address our worried well status. Um, on the other hand, it's a stitch up. We are moving towards centralized hegemony really quickly and really predictably. And the big companies that have giant billion-dollar market caps, you know, and you see their boards and you see their IP and patent strategies and you see where this goes, and it's fairly straightforward. Um, but for me, like I'm not especially ambivalent about that. Like, like, like we should, you know, like farmers going to do what farmer does, VCs are going to do what VCs do, and even though at the center of the psychedelic renaissance is this supposedly profound and ineffable transformative personal experience that reorganizes our, you know, our orientation to life, the universe and everything. It's, it's a, it's a sort of kind of, you know, I mean, this morning I was reading, I just was scrolling through my newsfeed and I saw a, an article in town and country, no less, right. And a hop, skip and a jump, you know, jump, jump from vanity fair. And it was like, why all the rich people are smoking toad? And you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake, like if we ever needed a marker to put like, when did late stage capitalism jump the shark? When did we know we were well and truly cooked? You could have said it was this morning when Town and Country published a piece on how 5MEO was the hit thing in the Hamptons, mm -hmm. right? So, so let's just be super, you know, I would say unemotionally realistic and pragmatic about the socio-political and economic forces that are coming to bear around what was formerly this underground tradition but it's specifically that underground tradition and arguably even the 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 um initiatory mystery school mm -hmm. traditions surrounding these things that's what gives me long-term hope mm -hmm. right so so i think it's i think without a doubt I, I would take it to vegas that we will end up with prozac nation 2.0 Right. We will end up with denatured, faster acting psychedelics that strip out most of, as much of the misto as they can while still getting the clinical efficacy. You'll have 
you know, the businessman trip used to be the joke about DMT. You will also have the, the, the businessman's fill in the blank, ayahuasca, psilocybin, LSD. And many of those are already in either studies, trials, or, or patent applications. So we know that's coming down the pike. Um, so basically how to, you know, and, and, and I would also expect this to follow not quite, if not chapter and verse, certainly have rhyming echoes of the move to smuggle meditation into the corporate world via uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mm -hmm. right? Because on the one hand, those were original lineage traditions that were designed to dissolve ego and, and provide one, you know, abiding connection to the non-dual suchness of the world, depending on the tradition and, and, and where they sent you. And, and on the other hand, became 15-minute apps mm -hmm. to help stressed out knowledge workers stay at their desk a little longer call in sick a little less often and quit more infrequently. Like that was the business case ROI for MBSR. Okay, but can't we make a case that these apps, I mean, especially in the context of like microdosing for productivity, I just like, I'm so over this line of like, how can we work with microdosing to improve focus? And you kind of made a reference to that for like the meditation apps, but what about using technology and these meditation apps and these lineages to bring them into the corporate space and plant medicines too, to help reorient people towards greater meaning and purpose like isn't that still possible yeah no it's a fool's fucking errand um it's not possible it's not happening right it's never happened and all we do is anybody who's on the progressive edge here of whatever they do whether it's management consulting to life coaching to like change the world into psychedelic advocacy everybody's just making a deal with the devil how do i look myself in the mirror and say i'm still doing the lord's work and what i tell myself is that i can go into the bowels of capitalism and i can collect better paychecks there and i can tell myself that i'm going to change the system from within and that that's how we're going to get our ROI. And that's how I keep my, you know, that, that's how I can look baby Jesus in the face the next time I see him in my eye trip. It's not a fucking real deal because, and I'll tell, I mean, I've, I've told this story infrequently, but I'll tell it again because for me, it was one of those pivot points where, and, and to be keeping in mind, right? I spent a decade in the conscious capitalism movement beside John Mackey and Whole Foods and all the good guys and, and the body shop and Ben and Jerry's and all the good guys, the supposed good guys. And, um, you know, trying to talk about triple bottom line, people, purpose, profits, planet, what fill in the blank that you want. And was working with a CEO in the YPO organization, which is one of the largest executive organizations on the planet. They control like $9 trillion in collective market cap. And, uh, and one of them went with Lynn Twist and the Pachamama Alliance down to the Amazon, took his son, sailed up little boat, you know, helicopters to boats, to planes, to canoes, all the way up to the untouched indigenous folks who then shared their plant medicine wisdom with them and his son. So like lineage healing, all kinds of meaningful stuff. And then at the end, you know, the predictable ask, which was if you have had your life impacted by this and had your life changed, please consider donating and protecting some of this sacred rainforest land for these indigenous folks that have been holding it down for us for eons before we were born would you? And he went back to his forum of YPO business executives and said, I am torn, fellas. This is a quarter of a million bucks I could spend to save the rainforest and here's my, 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 you know, the experience I just had with my boys, or I've just got a Ferrari Italia on pre-order. And I've always wanted a Ferrari Italia ever since I was a little boy. And a unanimous recommendation of his YPO forum, his band of brothers dedicated to keeping each other and raising each other up to the highest possibility of their inner selves and purpose and impact in the world said, bro, you deserve the Italia. 
that thing sat in his driveway, sat, sat in his enamel floored garage for three fucking years with less than a thousand miles driven on it. It eventually got sold as a, as, as a recoup investment because it had appreciated it. Meanwhile, the, rain, the rainforest is burning. And we've spent time with all the big boys in Silicon Valley. We've gone into those organizations. We've done our level best to change them. Unless you change the cap table, unless you change Milton Friedman's fiduciary responsibility, unless you change the operating agreements and the investor agreements and the governance stacks, people will continue to crank out the widgets that make them rich. And I have seen precious few people with the balls, the sack, the integrity, the backbone, the heart, and the clarity to act actually honor that which they've been shown on the other side of the veil via the psychedelic initiatory experience, unless they're having a flaky midlife crisis and they decide to check it all and then they go off become massage therapists or, or life coaches themselves, which basically decouples them from any of the power and influence they would have had get into the system. And now they're just one more talking point slash cringe event on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I know that's a long-winded, seemingly cynical summation of the impossibility of changing the system from within, but trust me, I've been there, I've tried, and I'm not buying it. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is why I really wanted to have you on here, Jamie, and why when I first met you at Horizons, that's one of the first things I said to you. I was like, wow, you have a pretty cynical perspective on things. Let's bring you on and have this very real discussion and really bring yeah. it you know, to a wider audience here because these, these are important things to be talking about. And I still believe in the goodness of humanity. I really do. Mm-hmm. And I believe that... You know, I have seen people actually go down and have these transformative experiences and then completely reorient their lives towards a different pathway that actually serves a greater purpose. Now, keeping in mind that we have this cultural framework, this system that's rooted in capitalism, we have a monetary system, so we're all playing this game within this very outdated structure. And so I'm I'm curious, like, do you think that, you know, not going down and having these experiences or not having psychedelics, I mean, it's like, do we stay unconscious? Do we stay unaware? Or do we at least try to like crack that open just a little bit at a time to, that can mm-hmm. potentially support us on the evolutionary process of waking up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I want to be clear, right? Like my cynicism and at times even outright contempt is not for the deeper human project, consciousness project, cosmos project at all, right? Like I have, I have deep commitment to that work and, and none of these things um, leave me remotely tempted to abandon it, you know, or, or, or give in to despair or anything else. So I think there's an interesting question we can hopefully come back to which is if all that's for naught, then what on earth gets you up in the morning? Cause mm-hmm. like, to me, that's hopefully the, you know, the Wendell Berry thing of be joyful, though you have considered all the facts, mm-hmm. right? Most of us are not considering all the facts. Most of us are settling for platitude and nostrums, you know, like just happy little things that let me get through the night. The kind of, you know, the, I was thinking of like whistling past the graveyard. Like if there really was a spooky monster in the graveyard, do you really think your whistling's going to fix it? And if there's probably not, then why are you fucking whistling? You know, so like we do an awful lot right now of crossing our fingers and hoping and leaning on fundamentally soft denialism. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean an area that we might be predisposed to be an advocate for, 
whether that's climate or psychedelic renaissance or whatever it was, but then just kind of, again, settling for platitudes and kind of going cross-eyed and fuzzy and therefore not acting with clarity and agency and urgency now, mm -hmm. which amounts to the opposite of the very thing we say we value. Right. So if, for instance, if you're like, I think the psychedelic renaissance is going to work out and it's such a beautiful experience and there's so many good people doing good things, then you know that everyone from Compass Pathways to Pfizer to whomever else is going to stitch this thing up while all the happy-go-lucky people are, you know, are, are, are burning their Palo Santo and hoping for the best, mm -hmm. you know, and the same with environmental stuff. If you're like, oh, I think the Paris Accords are going to work or COP26 in Glasgow, or like maybe I, and I still recycle and we've all got to do our part and I got a Tesla, you know, like that is actually soft denialism, mm -hmm. weirdly, mm -hmm. right? Because it, 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 re it removes us from actually acting at the levers of power that are actually going to call the ball game, make the, make the difference. Mm -hmm. So, so for me, that's, um, the, the interesting thing is, you know, at least on the level of psychedelic Renaissance is it's going to bleed out and do its goofy thing. And it's going to get medicalized and standardized and homogenized and all of that stuff. And, and in some respects, so not only is it, is it inevitable given the inertia, given the market trends, given Tim Wu's you know, information theory models, that kind of stuff, but it's okay. Cause it's not the whole ball game never has been. And in fact, really, in 99.9% .9 of human experience, the psychedelic experience has always been contextualized as a religious and sacramental and initiatory experience. Mm -hmm. So it's super weird to pull it out into a pharmacological medicalized intervention. That's never been done. Mm -hmm. Desacralized, taken, yanked out of any context or, or explanation of the numinous. We now consider access to the numinous, i.e., you know, the Johns Hopkins, MEQ 30, mystical estate, you know, estate assessments, et cetera, as, you know, as transitory excitement, you know, as, as, as non, you know, as dissociative visions, you know, like they, it gets written into the literature, like the whole point, the whole shooting match, right, of getting to kneel in front of the burning bush is now marginalized as a side effect to the clinical impact of the compound, right? So we've never done that before. And that is doomed to have underwhelming and adverse effects, mm -hmm. you know, as much as initial studies are showing also promising turnarounds, but it doesn't get us off the hook for the human experience. And the only thing that gets us, because like, right, I mean, the, the biggest kicker for those initial studies and experiences, is I go from deconditioned zoo animal li living in a socially defined reality tunnel, right? Like the Truman Show, mm -hmm. right? Or Neo as the computer coder, Mr. Anderson, right? Yeah, I go from that world to realizing magic is afoot and the goddess is alive. Like, yeehaw, that's a fucking steep ass and fun hockey stick part of the curve. Mm -hmm. But the moment that I've had that experience, right? I'm still, the human condition is still interwoven in that capital M more that I've just glimpsed. And the same way that like the second Harry Potter movie, the second Star Wars, the second Matrix aren't nearly as cool because they weren't world building movies. You already knew the world. And now you're coming back and you need actually a lot more plot for that story to be even remotely as satisfying. Godfather 2 is probably the only film on record, right? That's done better. And they actually built a new world, right? They went back to De Niro's childhood, right? And had that origin story woven in, mm -hmm. right? So, so fundamentally, initial exposure to psychedelics, especially in clinical therapeutic settings, are world-building events, mm -hmm. right? But fourth, fifth, tenth, a hundredth times are no longer. And when we realize that the 
that we have had in the same way that there's the argument for nature deficit disorder these days, like mm -hmm. the last child left in the woods or whatever that book was, right? Saying, hey, we are massively denatured. Humans have never done that. We see sun, we should, we should see sunrises and sunsets and we should be really hot and really cold and we should be amongst forests and trees and growing things mm -hmm. and we're not and we're suffering because of it. You could also say that we have a mystical experience deficit disorder, mm -hmm. right? So we get this asymmetric boost by having that atrophied muscle or diminished nutrient, whatever model we want to think, like put back into our system. We get an IV of the misto and it's like, oh, oh my God. You know, once again, I am alive in a resacralized landscape. And that is profound. I don't want to diminish that experience in the slightest, but that is simply to bring us back to normalized equilibrium as a human living in, in the wonder of existence. And then the, what do I do on the rainy, cold Tuesday morning in February when my dishes are in the sink and I have to, and I hate my job and I have to get back in rush hour to go sit at a chain to a desk, or I'm scrolling, doom scrolling the news and I see the state of the world. Like we haven't solved for any of those things, not even remotely. And, and just to, to, I think to honor psychedelics is also to, to allow them to be in their appropriate place in the sort of in the lexicon or the, or the paint palette of human experience and culture versus putting them on a pedestal and hoping that they're going to they're be our panacea mm -hmm. and our miracle card that gets us out of the pickle we're in. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be my sense, my sense. That's why I don't, I'm not overburdening mm -hmm. uh, the medicalized psychedelic renaissance. It's going to do what it does as mm -hmm. best as it can with all of the dysfunctions and, and, and mixed incentives baked into that mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. But what really gives me the chance of doing something useful is, um, is the cultural context surrounding fundamentally spiritualized use meaning it doesn't have to be hierarchical religious systems and that kind of thing but what does it mean to contact the numinous and how do we make sense of it together and what are the ethics and the stories and the guidelines and the context and the interpretations and the rituals you know and the customs that surround this experience and what ought we do with it and then like that to me is a fascinating deeply needed project. And if we get cracking on it, then we have a real chance at, at really creating a psychedelic renaissance that has not just double blind placebo control stats behind it, but actually has the, the depth and the breadth of being held in an appropriate cultural container. Mm -hmm. And it seems though that some people are engaging in it that way, that it's not necessarily mm -hmm. this, you know, mainstream, massive medicalized movement, but there is also this, you know, people who are holding it in a certain way that do tend to the sacred. So I, mm -hmm. I do think that that is simultaneously happening. And so I'm hearing you say a few things. One, it sounds like we need to find other ways to connect to the mystical in our everyday lives and reorient our lives towards tending to the sacred that don't necessarily require psychedelics at all because we can actually have peak experiences and awe-inspiring moments. And it also sounds like as like a very real tangible thing that someone can take away from this conversation is to readjust our expectations around what psychedelics can do with us and for us. And you quoted Chogim Trumpa in your book, Recapture the Rapture, which I loved reading that book. And a big part of that lineage of Tibetan Buddhism talks about, you know, cultivating a daily practice and 
it takes lifetimes to sort of step out of the rigidity of mind, of the this is the way it is, this is who I am. And we know that psychedelics catalyze change. So to me, it seems like we need to sort of reorient like a slow and steady wins the race kind of narrative. And that actually psychedelics can help us change. They can catalyze change. But the adjustment towards, you know, how much we're embodying this like radical expectation of transformation. You taught, you said that in your book, there was a story about you being a child and that you were still that same little kid um, that your personality didn't change that much. But what if it changed a fraction in a healthier direction that it was like when Pema Chodron or Chogyam talk about, you know, you can spend a whole lifetime of practice. And if you create a moment's pause between stimulus and reaction, then that's a worthy path to take, you know? So it's like readjusting these narratives that we're not going for the big transformation, but if they do help us change a little bit step-by-step, step, isn't that good and necessary, especially right now? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't disagree, but I'm just going to play the devil's advocate for a fun conversation. Okay. Fuck no, totally inadequate. <laughs> Right. I mean, because what we because and this is just the nature of our beast right now. So these, these aren't disconnected thoughts. Right. So we've laid a couple of foundational planks coming into this this point here, which is that we are still in late stage capital, neoliberal, fractured, individualistic consumer society producing latest and greatest hits for our mixed spirituality which, you know, as is well documented from the 50s onwards, had this kind of seemingly revolutionary pairing, which ultimately got entirely co-opted of Eastern mysticism, non-dual thought, etc. So now that whole notion, and, and Adam Curtis, the British uh, documentarian, who does all those wacky ass documentaries on the nature of self and all these things, you know, one of his most recent points was that stuff, like that upwelling of consciousness, and you can throw it back to Aldous Huxley and, you know, and Albert Hoffman and the psychedelic, you know, revolution back then, you can, you can weave in all those elements. And, but, but they all were also directly connected to social justice at the time, specifically civil rights and Vietnam and the nascent environmental movement. And that in 1968, it was, shit was popping off, right? There were revolutions in every, every, that summer from Prague to Paris, to London, to Detroit, right? Like all over things were happening. And, and young people on the ground were really convinced that this was the moment. It was all going to change to goodness, truth, and beauty. And then, then they all got shut down. And, there, and between that, MLK and RFK's assassinations dragging into Watergate and the utter dissolution, like that, there was a sort of, there was a, a turn. There was an inward cynical turn. And that went from we're marching on the streets and changing civilization to we're going back to the land and we're withdrawing and change, wouldn't you know it, nicely, conveniently, now comes from within. And that movement begat the new age movement begat the self-absorption like like gordon gecko greed is good coexisted with new age right change comes from within and they really were doppelgangers of the same cultural substrate and that's a hard one for progressive to actually accept acknowledge wrap our heads around we are ultimately complicit and the same thing with the secret the same thing with prosperity gospel the same thing i deserve what i can manifest for myself Right. And it's the big Airbnb mansion. It's the Lambo. It's the here I am in Bali or Fiji or Tulum. It's the whole lifestyle branding, like all that stuff snuck in and lulled us back to sleep. So my sense is, and this goes back to, hey, 
let the medicalized Renaissance do what it's going to do. It, it can only do so much because it has no cultural context at this point. But the religio mystical one, like go back to the Lucinian mysteries, go back to any of the old school traditions, there was always a sense of you're about to be initiated in something. You're in no way the first and you won't be the last. There is this fucking lineage, including the priest or the, you know, the hierophant that you're in relationship with, but who had one before them and before them and before them all the way back to the beginnings of time. This is who we are. This is what this is about. These are who our gods are. And crucially, these are your duties and obligations as an initiate, right? This is what you're actually supposed to do to serve. So this notion of like, if it just changes me and makes me a little happier, isn't that enough? Like, don't we have to do this one person at a time? No, right? The idea is like an obligation and a duty to serve is arguably the critical element that has been missing from the DNA of personal growth in the West in the last half century to 75 years now. And we positively have to put that back in. Because if it just becomes this solipsistic, narcissistic, let me crawl up my asshole with new improved twinkly lights, I will stay firmly wedged up my own asshole, right? Just with more twinkly lights. And that can actually aid and abet egoic development. Mm -hmm. So when you were saying, hey, aren't there a lot of people, you know, fundamentally accentuating this, the, the sacred and the sacramental, you're kind of like, well, kind of, you really, really have to take them on a case by case basis and, you know, by their, by their felt woolen broad-brimmed hats, you shall know them, right? Like fucking hell, right? I mean, it's such a pretentious assemblage of douchery, right? Masquerading as the sacred at this point that, you know, it just curdles your skin and or your blood, I suppose, is what would get curdled, right? So, and, and so there is the capacity to do it. There is absolutely the opportunity to do it. But once again, market economics incentives of like, I'm an Instagram life coach, I'm a medicine server, I'm a whatever, fill in the blank and look at me, here's the imagery of myself projected to you as a way to exact commerce or likes or clicks or following or whatever it would be. The spiritual marketplace has been hijacked and co-opted by false incentives. Because again, back in the day, the proverbial day, right? There was always ritualized value exchange around access to the mysteries. It wasn't pay to play, it wasn't Venmo right? It wasn't overpriced personal growth workshops in sexy locations, right? There was often gifting. For sure, there was something that happened, right? And it's acknowledgement of the priest, it's acknowledgement of the shaman, it's whatever it would be. But it was, it was circumscribed. And that didn't mean that there were never abuses or anything like that. It just meant there was a place and a way to embed value exchange that also was basically inculturated within the sacred experience and wasn't somehow co-opted by a transactional personal growth marketplace dynamics. So yes, there are still sacred movements going on. And yes, some folks are still holding that candle and keeping it clean, but it's precious few among a whole bunch of money changes in the temple. Mm -hmm. But would you still include yourself in this equation? I mean, you know, like you have a beautiful lifestyle from the outside. It was like, I see you on Instagram. Like you also have a program that you charge for, you know, there, there's a monetary exchange. We live in a monetary culture. So it's like, at what point, like, how, how do we pull the threads apart on this? Um, I mean, we do what we have always done. Mm -hmm. Like we are guides and instructors and teachers and we mm -hmm. train people in hard, hard, important things. Mm -hmm. So for me, whether I was working in, you know, grad school or an outdoor boarding school mm -hmm. or a mountaineering mm -hmm. school, it's always simply been mm -hmm. tuition for training 
and that's it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just seemed the cleanest. It's not imaginative. Mm-hmm. It's not even a good business model, right? Because if you want to get valuations, you get valuations on recur- recurring revenue and this and that and the other. It's a, it's a lousy business model, mm-hmm. but it's the most honest one that ever occurred to us. Mm-hmm. We train people to do hard things in cool places with kick-ass instructional design. Mm-hmm. If you want to do it, do it. If you don't, don't. Mm-hmm. And we do no upsells. You know, so if anybody's in state, which you probably will be at the end of a really kick-ass week doing something really fun and transformational, go home, cool your jets, we'll still be here. Mm -hmm. So that's our best effort at it. Different people do different things, right? There are people that will do podcasts and then they monetize via ads. There are Mm -hmm. people who do Patreon and they'll say, hey, here's the tin cup if you like what I'm doing or Substack, a similar kind of model. There's the whole Red Bull model of like sell something high margin and cheap like sugar carbonated sugar water or supplements and then we actually use the profits from that to do something cool like red bull athletics or you know or any other organization that does that kind of thing so there's a lot of different ways people are trying to metabolize starlight at this point how do i take whatever insights i'm getting from my particular sneak route up into the numinous and then how do i come back and fundamentally put roof over my head and and, and food on the table but for many people it doesn't necessarily stop there Mm -hmm. right i mean for us you know you ask about my life i mean our life actually hasn't hasn't changed a lick from when we were broke-ass grad students. I mean, our goal literally then was like, man, if I can just buy a mining claim, put a yurt up on it, throw up a solar panel and we'll ski or bike in. And then can we just write and paint and be humans on this earth in a beautiful spot? And like, literally that's what we're, you know, with, with a $2,500 Volkswagen Westphalia to noodle around in, you know? And so now, you know, a quarter century later, we're building an off the grid cabin, you know, you know, on a mining claim you know, up in the mountains in Colorado and our Volkswagen has grown into a sprinter, but it took 20 years of saving and waiting. So it's ironic, right? Like, it's not like we're like, oh, and then we'll get a boat and then we'll get a plane, but my plane doesn't have as many portals. My plane has a repeller and all my buddies have jets, you know, like, no, there wasn't scope creep Mm -hmm. in our life. And I would make the case that there wasn't because we, and this wasn't intentional, but it just sort of happened was we found ourselves pledged you know um to do our level best to live up to what we were shown Mm -hmm. in a series of accidental initiatory psychedelic experiences Mm -hmm. and that guided our life as a couple as a family as 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 entrepreneurs as everything it was like okay that's the motherfucking capital t truth Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. the rest of our life will be attempting just attempting Mm-hmm. to live as close to that as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. From that initiatory psychedelic experience. And so there are other people just like you who have had initiatory psychedelic oh, yeah. experiences who have reoriented their life for deep, deeper meaning. And that's what I'm rooting for here. And so it is interesting to hear that you had that experience and that you've stuck to the path. And I appreciate you sharing that so much, but that there's still cynicism of, you know, the corporate space and the C-suite that if medicine enters that culture, that it won't be able to change that culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I want to give a shout out to fellow travelers, right? I mean, at that Horizons conference, one of the things that I was most moved and touched by was A, the elders who were there, right? The folks that it's really easy to kind of dismiss or skip. I mean, everybody knows Stan Groff and everybody remembers Terrence McKenna because he gets sampled on their, you know, mm-hmm. on their playlist. But like, there is a long list, you know, throw in Rick, you know, there's a, there's a handful of folks that are really prominently known. But then you get, you go into those, that, that, that is part of a community. That is, 
a brotherhood and sisterhood that's been holding it down for 50 plus years. Mm -hmm. And there are some deeply wise and ethically principled carriers of the, of the flame mm -hmm. in that community. And there's also another, you know, the rising generation, mm -hmm. right? And whether that's organizations like North Star or Anthea or, you know, you name it, there's some, you know, or um, gosh, why am I spacing on the name? Who are the folks that are doing the open source access research projects? Usona, oh. um, right? And so you, you, you hear what they're doing and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is from the heart. This is mm -hmm. principle. This is mm -hmm. thoughtful, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's, there's tons mm -hmm. of amazingly dedicated people mm -hmm. doing their level best to fix this, save this, solve this, preserve this, take your action verb you know they're they're doing their part mm -hmm. and to me that is profoundly hopeful and encouraging regardless of whether it ultimately kind of works as a rear guard action right to protect against this kind of rising tide for me when i'm speaking to you and when i speak most of the time in public it's not to that community that community i, I think is deserving of infinite amounts of love, respect, appreciation, support, encouragement, um, and acknowledgement. It's, it's more to the, what is in the zeitgeist? What is, what is in people's news feeds? What is the pop media coverage of this stuff? And what does it look like in HuffPo and Vice and the yeah. occasional New York Times and you know those kind of things mm -hmm. as to say, hey, that narrative, mm, mm -hmm. not so much. Mm -hmm. And you got to go through the, the, you know, the trough of disillusionment <laughs> of what's really going on to then go start climbing the hill of you know, realistic optimism, mm -hmm. which includes all those wonderful advocates and allies that are doing their level best mm -hmm. to help steer this thing. Yeah, I really appreciate this conversation so much. And I have this conversation a lot. Like for those of us who have been in the psychedelic space for many years, you cannot help but look around and feel the overzealousness of the movement. And, you know, the investment yeah. bros, like I can't even tell you how many people I met at the parties at Horizons who are like, I've had three psilocybin journeys and now I'm investing millions of dollars into the psychedelic space. And I'm like, wow, for the love of God, like, please, you're, you're shaping the movement your money is shaping this movement. And then I have been in this inquiry about not wanting to be the judgmental person, you know, being like, oh, I'm morally superior because I'm coming from this good place. And then that's sort of this catch 22 that puts me in that same box. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, and then I'm just judging other people who I don't think are doing their best. And so part of it is just this process of like holding space to the best of my capacity, like other people are doing, just like showing up and doing our best and also trying to influence in a good way, you know, which I think really comes down to supportive scaffolding and curriculum that we can create that supports a psychedelic sacred experience that then, you know, helps to reorient people. So, you know, I think integration is being talked about a lot more now, but do you, do you think it's enough? Like what's your narrative around like everyone <laughs> that's talking about integration? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's oftentimes a lot of lip service. I mean, mm -hmm. I asked a functional medicine doctor here in Austin who was doing a fair amount of rogue and a fair amount of in-depth psychedelic therapies after being relative novices themselves. Um, like, you know, maybe three, four years of personal experience and straight into full send, you know, psychedelic dosages for their folks. Um, and was like, hey, whoa, what kind of, what kind of integration are you doing? And it was like, oh, no, don't worry. We're doing lots. Like afterwards, we sit with them for a couple of hours and talk about what happened. And then we send them home. 
And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, right? Like, like that notion of, once again, I mean, the lens that we lay over the actual act of a human consuming a psychoactive compound and then having a rich interior and neurophysiological experience and then dot, 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 mm -hmm. what's next depends entirely on is this a sacramental initiate, you know, initiatory experience? Is this a medical, clinical, therapeutic experience? Is this a personal? I mean, recreational gets thrown around. I, I think yeah, I'm curious. I, I wanted to ask you, what's your because recreational could also be this portal into the like awe-inspiring moments of peak experience. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my favorite recipe is just is straight up for like life, you know, for life, for marriage, for meaning, for growth is is get your ass to someplace wild in the backcountry, you know, natural hot springs, preferable, kick ass, you know, celestial event, new moon, full moon, meteor shower, optional but suggested, right? And throw the fuck down with a handful of people you love and be remade on this earth as a human and then spend a few days basking in that with no superego, no socially defined anything, no phones, no bullshit, just you as the humans, this little band of people together, mewling like infants and put yourself back together and watch a few more sunrises and sunsets and bask in the National Geographic splendor of actually being in one of those sacred places in 3D mm -hmm. and, and let yourself knit back together and then have that as a somatic marker, like a felt sense and bodily memory of what it feels like to be alive, aware and in tune on this earth mm -hmm. and then go back to your life. And if you wanna call that recreational, I suppose it's a default category like none of the above you know, but I would see it much more as DIY sacramental mm. and available to all of us. Mm -hmm. And even in an experience like that, let's say you go, you have three very profound days that are deeply meaningful and incredibly significant, and you go back to your life and let's say no change happens at all. Wouldn't we call that beneficial still in the end of having that three days? Well, I mean, I think it's just entirely, there's a, there's a lot embedded in the phrase, no change, right? I mean, if, it, if it's meaning I stick with my job, I stick with mm -hmm. my life, I stick with mm -hmm. my wife, whatever, then that could be nominally no change, mm -hmm. but the inside could have been mad, you know, massively reshifted. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, I could have gone from borderline depressed and suicidal to optimistic and focused, mm -hmm. you know, still doing the same stuff, mm -hmm. right? But, but a total inner mm -hmm. shift. Mm -hmm. It could be that, and this is the thing, right? I mean, for most most of the changes that will likely be most meaningful to any of us and for all of us, they're going to be orthogonal. They're going to come at an angle from the actual direction of impact, right? So a clinical trial that has people in it for three weeks, two weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever the period would be, and it's mocking and measuring, right, is really a blunt instrument on trying to trace and track and attribute orthogonal change. It's much closer to like a pool break, you know, like when you're playing a game of pool and you whack the white ball into all the other balls and then they scatter, right? You don't know and chaos, you know, mathematicians cannot accurately map which ball goes in which pocket, which time. <laughs> but the only thing we can do is make sure we, you know, it's a tight rack that all the balls are as close together as possible to transmit as much energy as possible and a clean break. Can I whack that white ball for all I'm worth in a straight line? Mm -hmm. And that's arguably the psychedelic experience, mm -hmm. right? Can I create a clean break, a clean injection or infusion of energy into that complex chaotic mix? And that in itself, on the one hand, 
free will determinism, take your pick. But on the other hand, that's the one thing I can do. And it's going to increase. It doesn't guarantee, but it is going to increase the likelihood of right. sinking some balls and some pockets that I'm trying to. And so that to me, that would be, it's a way of kind of holding these experiences tightly, but loosely. Like I'm not aware of too many people. And if they have, most of them have gone insane who have ever attempted a one-to-one -one linkage between the magical mystical realms and bending 3D reality, right? Like magic is even almost exclusively orthogonal. Otherwise everyone just run off and win the lottery, <laughs> right? Um, so, but, but shit still happens. Every, you know, anybody who's dabbled in non-ordinary realms has experienced black cats in the matrix, has experienced upticks in synchronicity, has experienced the, 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 the wibbly wobblies between realms of cause and effect, but it's orthogonal. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that would be my sense, too, is that the, the arguably the best place to hold all of this power and potentiality is not to try and grasp it and manipulate it for any goal, no matter how seemingly noble, is to just kind of bear witness to it as also a part of this human experience and to hold it loosely and to mm -hmm. return to love and service. Mm -hmm. Like that to me feels like a really good center point mm -hmm. that will almost never lead us astray. Right. And it kind of comes back to this place of, you know, when you tune into the spiritual traditions, like there's a reason that they talk about the path of awakening being a slow evolutionary process. It's okay. Oh, you yeah. dedicate lifetime after lifetime. And even if you just open and awaken just a little tiny fraction more, that that's actually time well spent. And again, I do think that, you know, like even if you go through those three days and you have this like inner transformation of like 1%, like I'm still in the narrative that this is still beneficial and helpful. And that really what the key takeaway here is in how we hold it and the narratives we hold about it and the expectations that we imbue these experiences with. Well, we're just thinking of timeframes, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would agree with you um, up in most conditions, like, like if the hierophants, priests, elders, whatever the sort of authority structures passing on this wisdom might hold would be like, hey, yeah, even 1%, like even if we just are, you know, it, the arc of justice is, you know, the, the, is long, but you know, what the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, right? So like the arc of becoming or selfhood is long, but it bends towards love, right? You could, we can, we can hold that provided we're fundamentally running a cyclic model of time. The goal is to run out the clock on these lifetimes of ours with as little damage to self and other and as much growth as possible. Great, then 1%, you, you, uh, you've earned your right. If on the other hand, we're entering some form of linear mapping, beginnings, middles, and potential ends, if we're understanding some potential time or res resource scarcity approaching, right? Then you have to run a different set of chats, which is like, hey, if you are having open access to these deep healing experiences, congratulations, you won the lottery, you're in the top 1% of 1% of humans who have ever lived. <laughs> it's a profound blessing, you know, given to few. And, and you're on the hook, there is there is responsibility that comes with this access. <laughs> right? This is not just a loll around on the on the floor you know, wrapped in plushies and theragunning each other, mm -hmm. right? Like this is, this is like, oh shit. Okay. I am being, I am being gifted and burdened with the responsibility of knowledge, wisdom, compassion, capacity, whatever it might be. And I am acting on behalf of thousands to millions 
who will never get a crack at this. <laughs> and so if I just fritter it away, if I just turn it into 1% better for me, and I forget my part to play, then I feel like there's a profound ethical breach. And whether that's Trungpa and others, and by the way, honking great footnote on Trungpa as additional research has come about, about abuses in their community, right? But nonetheless, mm -hmm. let's say Trungpa first half of his career laying down some really valuable shit. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was Trungpa looking to redeem the Dalai Lama, looking to redeem Chinese genocide against the Tibetans with the, with the upside of bringing the Dharma to the West, right? Mm -hmm. Or decimation of the Amazon with mm -hmm. prompting the diaspora of ayahuasca wisdom to the world. Like these are fucking blood prices that have been paid for us to dabble Right. And so you realize that, that it's not just a party trick. It's not just something to fit on my calendar on Friday or Saturday nights, mm -hmm. because, you know, because friends in Williamsburg or, you know, you, you know, you know, or Wimberley invited me out to have a little look-see, mm -hmm. right. That the, that these wisdom traditions and that these sacred technologies have come at the, literally at the, at the price of, of genocide, ecocide and decimation then we have some real responsibility as we just shoot the moon for shits and giggles mm -hmm. to come back and honor what we've been shown. And it's mm -hmm. fucking painful because the gap on Monday morning, right? Between my easy, comfortable life, between a job where I get, where I get income, but if I really trace it all back, there's, there's all sorts of ambiguities and conflicts there, or it's just simply not my work, life's work to do, or that there are some, but there's somebody who's the least of my brothers and sisters that I feel compelled to serve. And I've just been dialing that noise down in my head because it's just too much if I heard it unadulterated. Like that's what we need to be waking up to. You know, not self-serving stories of moving into the fifth dimension, not that I got access to my guardian angel, not that I'm actually from the Pleiades, like none of that shit matters a damn unless or until. I mean, it might super duper matter, but not unless or until, <laughs> right? We stabilize this shit show mm -hmm. and earn the right for everyone mm -hmm. to play the bigger game with us. I like the- It's Bodhisattva shit 101. Totally. And I really just want to acknowledge that you're bringing a perspective to the table here that I really appreciate. And it's making for a very interesting and unique conversation. So thank you for that. And I want to touch on service here, because it seems like a lot of people do have this trigger around monetary exchange for psychedelic medicines and these initiatory experiences that are very profound. And I do believe that there are people doing really good work. They're holding ceremony. And we live in a monetary-based culture where that is the current method of exchange. So, you know, people are offering these really beautiful and profound experiences. Of course, this comes with a total dark side. There is a complete shadow side to this where many people are just profiting from this experience. And so I, I want to acknowledge that. But there are people who are actually doing really good work and they actually deserve to receive compensation for this. So I just want to unpack service here. So can you speak more to that? I mean, I mean, the first is just do nice things for free. You know, that, that's mm -hmm. a very clean and easy way mm -hmm. to describe it and define it. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole random acts of kindness and senseless beauties was, you know, it was, it was a viral bumper sticker for a reason. It kind of like, it interrupts people's brains. Mm -hmm. um, and 
and so, and it really does. I mean, and I think Tim Ferriss put something out that I really enjoyed about a month ago, where it was kind of like, don't get so high on your own supply. Like it was, it was somebody else's writing, but it was like, if you think of a hundred year old person, you know, as a century, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then how many people have lived since these wild far out, there's 300 people have lived since the pyramids mm-hmm. and, you know, and 50 people have lived since, you know, God knows what, 500 years ago, right? I mean, like, like, or five, you know, like, so it's just like that notion of like, we haven't been around that long. Mm-hmm. Not that much has happened, really. Mm-hmm. And even the biggest wigs, like a Steve Jobs, will vanish into the footnotes of history, lickety split. Mm-hmm. So do your thing and don't be so obsessed with does it scale, <laughs> you know, or mm-hmm. am I going to get a million fans or a million likes or whatever the metric might be. Mm-hmm. Like, understand that we all are laboring in anonymity. Mm-hmm. And arguably, it's like it's love that's eternal. Mm-hmm. So if we can just keep, if you can just increase the peace, you know, then being nice to the homeless person, you know, then doing an after school program, then mm-hmm. baking mm-hmm. cookies for the poor old Amazon delivery mm-hmm. person, right? What like the random acts of kindness and the senseless beauty, just being mm-hmm. humans together, being good to each other matters a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to become the next one on Oprah about this thing mm-hmm. to start doing this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, that, that sweet little cartoon of like, you know, somebody terrified about the future and they're like, like, well, what do you think, you know, next year is going to bring? And it's like, well, I think it's going to bring flowers. Well, why on earth do you think that? It's like, because I'm planting them now. <laughs> right. I love right? Yeah. And on the one hand, super sweet, you know, saccharine cute. But on the other hand, you're like, actually, that is a solid, mm-hmm. that, that, like that's actually an essential mm-hmm. social nutrient. Like, like the whole, you know, the other version of that is that, you know, the best time to have planted a shade tree was yesterday and the second, or, or 30 years ago and the second best time is today. Like, mm-hmm. like we need to start stretching out our, mm-hmm. basically our ROI window. Like when, how do I calculate? How do any of us calculate return on investment? Do I do the thing and do I get paid back? And if so, how quickly? Mm-hmm. And get it beyond our own lifetime. Mm-hmm. Because the odds are, that we've had it as good as we're gonna get it for a while. And that everything from material abundance to ease of liquidity of money to, you know, mm-hmm. to, to living styles, to mobility, to a th- you know, even to, to stability, prosperity, and, 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 and peace. Odds are that somewhere in the last 50 years was the high water mark. Mm-hmm. And it may take a lumpy bumpy dive from there for a while, mm-hmm. in which case, Right. What do we have to inoculate ourselves against mm-hmm. anxiety, depression, suicide, despair, which is what is increasingly engulfing folks. Mm-hmm. Right. And arguably what that is, is it's getting out of that rational, fragmented ident- consumer identity where I've been conditioned again and again and again to expect that whatever itches or ails me, even if you're the one who's been poking and prodding me to agitate that lack in me in the first place, isn't fixable in six hours with a pill or I pull a Karen and call the manager like that's our M.O. right now. Right. I want mine and I want it now. And I demand satisfaction via mm-hmm. consumption. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can mm-hmm. loop in psychedelic Renaissance to that mm-hmm. exact. I, I'm going to go to Jamaica. I watched Goop. I'm going to do the thing. I need the thing. I want the thing. Where is it for me? I totally get and, it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so that notion of intergenerational forbearance like we're going to go into the shit, but we're going to go into it on behalf of our children and their children. So now I have capacity in my tank that is infinitely greater 
than if I was just in it for me now. If I was just in it for me now, I'd be like, oh, this is not what my, I thought my happy life was supposed to look like right around now. I was supposed to be traveling around Europe on a Eurail pass and standing in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And here I am in a soup kitchen doing this thing, poor me. Instead of, can we keep the light going? <laughs> and my job is not infinite and complete satisfaction for myself and bypassing of the human experience. Mm -hmm. My job is, can I just keep this little fucker flickering mm -hmm. and pass it down the line? Mm -hmm. And that's a fundamental recalibration of the game. It's arguably how all humans ever mm -hmm. used to operate and still do around many parts of the displaced world. Mm -hmm. Refugee movements, diaspora communities, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's so many humans other than mm -hmm. the consumer zoo animal developed West mm -hmm that have never, never abandoned that kind of intergenerational and, and, and immigrant families, right? Constantly have that dynamic where second, third generation are like, I don't understand you grandma or parent. Like, why are you so uptight? Why are you so driven? Why can't you just relax and kick it and let me have a nice life however I want to? And they're like, you have no idea. I mean, my, my brother's girlfriend's family is ethnically Chinese. They left, they fled the cultural revolution in China to land smack dab in the Vietnam War, to flee to Cambodia and get swept up in the Khmer Rouge, mm -hmm. all in right, one family's ten, like 10 to 20 years to finally make it to Southern California, mm -hmm. right? And now she's doing microbiology for the Department of the Environment, like helping like oil slicks and, and giant scale environmental remediation. And you're like, and she's like, yeah, I've got, I've got to give it up to my grandma. You know, like she led through things I have no mm -hmm. comprehension of, mm -hmm. right? So like, to me, that's where, that's where the bottomless hope comes from. It's mm -hmm. not hanging our hats on psychedelics as some miracle cure to the human condition or as some absolution from this late stage capitalist neoliberal consumer society that we're all coming up in, mm -hmm. which completely shapes the Overton window of even what we think we want mm -hmm. or what's the high, you know, what, what is the good, the true and the beautiful, even our good, true and beautiful. Mm -hmm. You're like, is that Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen? I don't know, what is it, right? Like, like even our notions of that have so thoroughly degraded that it's time for a healthy dust off mm -hmm. and a reboot mm -hmm. on Western Civ. And then if you wanted to use psychedelics as a totally radical tool, to reconnect us back to the to the insights of the Lucinian mysteries, right? And to leave initiates wandering back out into the world pledged, <laughs> you know, um, then, you know, like, like, like guerrilla Gnosticism. <laughs> I'm all for that. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, but before I do, I just think for people listening who have never heard of the Eleusinian Mysteries, do you feel like just explaining a brief synopsis of that just for people who don't know? Sure, sure, sure. So, so ancient mystery school in Greece um, was persistent, uninterrupted for 2000 years, which is really saying something as far as anything cultural. And it tipped, you know, odds are strong that it involved a psychoactive potion. It was nine days of fasting, pan, you know, uh, theater, pageantry, all sorts of state-inducing and storytelling transformational things, and it sort of seeded Western Sib, so everyone from Pythagoras to Plato to Socrates participated. Um, and so arguably just using it as a placeholder for an initiatory psychedelic experience that seeds civilization and culture and creates a cadre of initiates that actually move culture itself, and actually there's positive, visible 
tracking of the impact of that into the wider world, which, you know, by the way, did also happen. If you, anybody hasn't read what the doorman said is the classic sort of psychedelics as it, as the seed to Silicon Valley, you know, and, and everything, those early moments in the sixties and, you know, through mid seventies in the psychedelic space coming out of Stanford, Stanford research Institute, Palo Alto, the whole neck of the woods, the redwoods to the Santa Cruz's to La Honda's to, you know, to Marin, like that's how we got Apple computers. You know, that's how we got uh, Snow Crash and Metaverse notions. That's how we got it at all. So um, those kinds of concepts of the epiphanic seeding, uh, the cultural, uh, tried and true and longstanding. We just need the next wave. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, if, if psychedelics are, could potentially catalyze the destruction of capitalism. Like, what if psychedelics are the impetus for the restructuring right now and to take it down well, or do you, I mean, this is the thing. This, or this do you think thing. people are just doing psychedelics and being like oh now we can invest in the companies and we're just going to keep perpetuating the old systems yeah i mean there was that funny onion article which was actually parodying a guy i actually think i know um, <laughs> who was based in marin and was doing ayahuasca retreats for tech bros to come up with their next disruptive idea you know and like shaman you know shaman taken to task for not coming up with enough disruptive innovation in his ayahuasca ceremony like that kind of a thing so once again on the like the paradox i think of psychedelics is that you you know if you are fortunate to find yourself in some truly non-ordinary domain but it also appears to be coherent it appears to have logic it appears to have information that's relevant or even you know revelatory for you um it's easy to assign a sort of fixity or almost anthropomorphize that experience as a teacher, as a wisdom, as a source of something con- consistent, you know, with a point of view and a perspective. Um, and I think that, you know, that is incontrovertibly subjectively true for the people who have experienced something like that. But on the other hand, you know, the, 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 the cliche of tools are neutral and it's how you use them, like psychedelics are um, simply access to non-ordinary states and hyper, you know, hyper accelerated information fields Mm -hmm. and how you use them is absolutely culturally contextually bound. So if I come back to tech bro land, Mm -hmm. venture capital on Sand Hill road, what can we do to the, to disrupt the next thing? And I've had a partial experience with no ethical context, Mm -hmm. no elders or mentorships, no one to clip my wings if I start talking shit about things I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I mean, think about a Zendo, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you have some Kensho experience, you have some breakthrough experience. The first thing you do is you go and you kneel in front of your teachers and they ask you a few questions like, okay, what did he see? What does he think? How's he holding it? And how does he feel? Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, it's going to be slow your roll, son. You're not as far as you think you are, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what the lineages would typically do. Mm-hmm. Go back and chop more wood and carry water. But, but I'm enlightened now. No, fuck you. I go back and chop more wood and carry water. And if you don't do that with a smile, that's all we need to know about how far you think you go, mm-hmm. right? We don't have those checks and balances. So I, it's, I cannot advocate enough for the absence mm-hmm. and the absolute dire need for um, cultural systems to hold and balance this stuff because you know as perspective right sydney gottlieb was the head of mk ultra took 200 acid trips himself and dosed whitey bulger the mob boss in the boston prisons and he was borderline sociopath that just fucked with people's minds and souls for decades while having his own little cabin and his own little goats in the garden and meditating in the mornings and thinking he was doing the lord's work or at least uncle sam's mm-hmm. 
-hmm. right? And, you know, and, you know, Mm -hmm. bloody mushroom Aztec cults, mm -hmm. you know, ripping the hearts out of victims on the top of big ass pyramids, mm -hmm. you know, highest coons on psilocybin, like, you know, like it's really, really important to be like, on the one hand, unlimited potential upside, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, all sorts of unstructured squirreliness and the potential for, for doom also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like context, though, because like I actually hold the opinion that, wow, it would be so amazing to work with world leaders and bring them through these initiatory experiences and then offer them the scaffolding and that kind of training to make sure that they're really, you know, deepening into a spiritual practice or really listening to the wisdom of their heart and actually catalyzing. I mean, so I don't know if you know this, Jamie, but I'm finishing my graduate degree and I'm focusing on the intersection between psychedelics and creative problem solving for leadership development. I, I believe that psychedelics can be an incredible tool for learning how to interrupt patterns. And that's exactly what we need right now. But it sounds like it's your concern is really like the support scaffolding and like the safety net on the other side of that so that we're not enhancing, you know, ego inflation and super egos, but we're actually really rooting into daily practice and earning the wisdom. As you say, you know, be careful of unearned wisdom, but daily practice and training does point towards earning that wisdom and what about a dual approach system that helicopters you to the top of the mountain and then offer a pathway and systems for people to actually take the climb after the experience well yeah no i mean i mean it's got to be a hybrid both end for sure um and you know um I, you know if, if i'm doing anything right now right it's fundamentally like a a half-assed effort to sort of play the role that Krishna does in the Bhagavad Gita, right? Like where Arjuna, the prince, is on the verge of battle. Both sides of his family are on, you know, on either side. And he's like, man, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. And Krishna's like, suck it up, fat kid. You got to play your part anyway, right? He's, he's like, there's no wiggling off the hook here, right? You don't get to suck your thumb and go home. You have to do what you have to do. And in fact, your only redemption in this whole mess is to play your part to fulfill your dharma balls deep. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? And so this is this is a paraphrase of the Bhagavad Gita for those <laughs> listening at home, right? But um, right, but but to me, like so, like your what you're doing, right, is your work. You're called to it. Mm -hmm. You're trying to make it as beautiful, good, and true as you possibly can, mm -hmm. right? So have at it, mm -hmm. right? Do that part to the fullest, and it might work. Right. Even if it and it's probably won't work linearly, it just might orthogonally. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't know. And that's the leaving space for grace. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there is this sense, right, that, not, you know, you run all the math on any any trend line you want these days and they all go sailing off a cliff in the next 30 years. Right. Overwhelmingly. So you're like, oh, shit, what do we do? But then like Kevin Kelly has this beautiful quote where he's like, hey, it's always easier to imagine the devil than God. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the second law of thermodynamics, everything tends towards decay. Mm -hmm. Right. But in fact, life, an entire string of life is highly improbable. Right. That flower beside you, highly improbable. You and me, highly improbable. But we exist anyway. Right. So how do we leave the space for grace? How do we celebrate the possibility for life and growth? Mm -hmm. Right. How do we maintain radical hope that can survive contact with radical disillusionment, mm -hmm. setback and suffering? Because, right, we don't need whistling past the graveyard hope. We need radical hope. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? Hope for, and, you know, as Jonathan Lear at the University of Chicago says, like hope that transcends a vision for anything in the foreseeable future. It is hope for something we cannot see from here. And this was after a study of 19th century, like Indian reservations and removal. So like hardcore mm-hmm. shit. Right? He's like, hope for something we cannot see from here, but nonetheless believe, right? Mm-hmm. And that psychedelic initiatory experience, if and as it comes through us and for us, mm-hmm. right, is to be twice born, mm-hmm. right? And many of those experiences, whether it's 5-MeO, whether it's ketamine, whether it's nitrous oxide, there's a host of compounds that do a very similar physiological thing, which is they do a deep, they do a reset at the level of the brainstem. They drop neuroelectric activity all the way down to near brain death. So delta wave, point, you know, point 0.1 to 5 hertz. So just barely doing anything. And in that realm, is the numinous, is the reset, is the chance to be like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. right? I once was lost, but now I'm found, right? I once was a firstborn human trying to desperately claw away from this mortal life, seeking states and seeking transcendence and trying to bypass the fucking thing because I didn't actually say yes to this. I was just born by accident. To die and be reborn and, you know, like the Dorothy's, like the Ebenezer Scrooge's, be like, oh, I choose it this time. Mm-hmm. I, I would give anything to be back in my meat suit with a name that I remembered, like kissing the ground, mm-hmm. right? Hugging the people I love, right? I come home by choice. Mm-hmm. So for me, we asked about radical hope and the sea of all this cynicism, right? I mean, yeah, cut through the bullshit, mm-hmm. simple hope, mm-hmm. cut through the joy on the other side of all the facts, mm-hmm. right? Wade through the grief of confronting all the facts and then reside in the joy right the peace that passeth all understanding that we are dead men fucking walking and nothing we can do is going to matter a damn except and only Mm -hmm. but to live our dharma to the fullest Mm -hmm. and let the chips fall Mm -hmm. so to me that's the soul force right that's the Mm -hmm. unlock like that's what we need Mm -hmm. a billion humans to take to the streets with right Mm -hmm. soul force Right. That sense of not, not, I'm not coming from anger. I'm not coming from rage. I'm not coming from judgment. I'm not coming from fear or for scarcity. I'm coming singing my war song, which is my love song, <laughs> which is our, all of our song. Right. And like, that's what we need. And if you want to say that's where I would hold out hope for the psychedelic Renaissance, it's right there. It's can we initiate ourselves and each other into twice born humans. Right. And walk each other home. Hmm. I so appreciate that. And there is so much that you speak to about what's happening in the psychedelic movement right now that I I really do agree with and share a very similar sentiment with. So I really appreciate that. I often just ask myself, okay, like where do I want to be placing my focus and my attention? And I'm so grateful for people like you who want to really speak to all of the crazy shit that's going on in the movement right now um, so that I can actually just keep doing the work that I'm doing. And I am really grateful that you do what you do and you do it very well. And um, so many people listening to this come to me and ask me, what psychedelic facilitator training should I do to become a guide or a facilitator? Mm -hmm. And it, it actually really is such a 
challenging question, especially because we've lost this like apprenticeship model to stepping onto this path. And so I'm just curious, like what advice or wisdom you want to share or impart to the people listening to this who really feel called to be of service and to serve these medicines and to hold space for this kind of work. And even, you know, feel like three years on the path is a very long time to be working with psychedelics, for example. So I'm kind of curious, like, what's your sentiment around that? Well, I mean, I mean, step one is the world has way too many wounded healers. So, you know, seriously interrogate your motivation to start with. And if you weren't already in the helping professions, in some form of therapeutic or supportive role of just helping men people. It could be, I was a nurse or a paramedic, but I really feel like it's more about hearts and souls or, you know, whatever. Like if you weren't already down that road, um, really inquire into the why this pivot now. And in the same way that many life coaches are basically just broken people who have sunk so much money into their own personal growth and endless seeking that they now feel like have desperately have to turn around and monetize it somehow. And there's always a greater fool behind them. So why not do that? Like, let's not be, we don't need any more of them. Oh my goodness. Wait, I have to pause you for a second. So I had a friend, I, I asked a lot of friends before we got on this call, I said, what, what do you want to ask Jamie Wheel? And one of my friends, Adam said, can you ask him why Jamie Wheel is hellbent on hating life coaches? <laughs> that was his main oh, question. Just generally shitty people with no experience and no business charging others for their ersatz wisdom. Oh, but don't you think that that's a little judgmental now, Jamie? 100%, 100%. I, I, I own the judgment. Um, uh-huh. But, but, yeah, that's the this, this same with neo-tantra teachers. Like, well, I banged a lot of dudes in my 20s and now I guess I'm, you know, and, and I'm getting tired of Tinder. So I guess I'm going to be a neo-tantra coach now. You're like, yeah, probably not. Right. <laughs> so yeah, this is just, this is just, this is just the nature of our age and it's just the money changes in the temple. So that I've got no qualms with. I have maximum love and support for anybody finding their way through this world and attempting to, you know, put a roof over their heads, however they choose. <laughs> I have, I take the gloves off when people presume to speak of the sacred and monetize it and sell it to newcomers who can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the sole line that gets crossed at the sand for me where then I'm not, I'm not even pretending to be compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, yeah. So that, so then if you are, if you actually truly integrated your reasons, right. And it's not just kind of a piece of driftwood in a, in a, you're, that you're adrift in the sea of, um, and it's true for you at some deep and abiding level of your life dharma, right? Then by all means go forward with it. And there's map certifications, there's CIS. There's, I mean, I'm imagining there's just a whole mushrooming up of certifications. I would strongly encourage you to go with the handful, the few that are actually meaningful, sanctioned, require additional certifications, et cetera, and actually are really quite oversubscribed and hard to get into because you know they'll, they'll matter mm-hmm. um, as a carrying card for quality control and trust for patients. And then the other is Matt Johnson, our uh, friend and colleague at Johns Hopkins, published a piece last year in a peer-reviewed journal um, on the challenges of therapists smuggling in their own worldviews. And that can be something as subtle as I've got a Buddha on my windowsill, you know, or it's music selection, or you've had these experiences and I'm presuming to tell you what that was, whether that was a past life regression or whether that was contact with entities or your future past self, whatever it might be, right? And his point, which I, which I couldn't echo more, which is get the fuck out of your client's minds and souls and don't take the claim as the privileged administrator of the magic. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. right? If you're going to be in that space, it is, it is, it is highly suggestible. It is highly susceptible. It is not for you to claim even a fraction of the light Mm -hmm. and be in that role of developmental support of midwife, right? Of whatever that might be, but be clear Mm -hmm. and don't be skimming the cream Mm -hmm. via the proximity to the the sacred and the numinous because we see that even with professionally trained mds who are now getting into this space they are absolutely getting high on their own supply and when people come out of those state experiences pie-eyed and imprinting like little ducklings in the you know in the barnyard right like the people's you know there's a quote from ovid uh, you know in latin which says who looking down on 20 or 30 upturned shining faces does not sometimes say more than he knows, right? And that temptation, right, to take the claim, the, the temptation to funnel a little bit of that light through ourselves is probably one of the biggest pitfalls as folks rush into being in the healer facilitator space without actually being subject to, say, 20 years of lineage mm-hmm. progression and, mm-hmm. and tempering. Mm-hmm. It's in a similar vein, you know, I also get so many people that ask me and that message me on Instagram. So please do not message me on Instagram asking me where you can find a psychedelic experience. And it's actually made me think about this lately because I was like, wow, for so long where this wasn't all over social media, people had to actually tune in and like follow the signs and have like some synchronistic experience that led them to a medicine journey that was actually, you know, part of the initiatory process. And I'm also kind of curious your thought on that, like the path of actually just staying open to the way the medicines find you. Well, I mean, I mean, yes, for sure. Um, that's obviously hard if somebody's just kind of isolated in a middle American town or, or a country where things are harder or tougher and it's, there's not a sort of even remotely visible underground mm-hmm. to plug into. Mm-hmm. So I for sure feel for folks that are trying to find a way into this world and just don't even know where to find a door or a handhold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the past, and this is not a nostalgic statement, but it is a sort of the neuroanthropological assessment, which is like, hey, there was a thing there. What were the operating systems and structures that made that work? It used to be Grateful Dead shows, right? They were the predominant vehicle for moving psychedelics all around North America Mm -hmm. on an annual basis. And all you had to do was get a ticket and your experience would be like, oh, get a tab, get some mushrooms in the parking lot. Here's your ticket to go to the, to go to the ritual. You'd go to the ritual, you combine it with the sacrament, which is available there. And then you would have your boom, like, oh my gosh, now I fucking understand what a Grateful Dead show is about. Now I understand why people run away and join the circus. And what's so key, and I mean, I wrote about this in Recapture, the Rapture, which was, it came embedded with sacred scriptures via the song lyrics, which was an entire cosmology and worldview of what does it mean to be a psychedelically initiated human wandering around this earth, including good times and bad. And, and there, was a, there was an antinomian element, which was no one takes the claim, right? If I knew the way, I would take you home, but I don't. That's the joke. That's the mystic nod and a wink, because we all know right now, right? But we're, and we're singing it and we're playing it. So clearly somebody knew back when, but no one's going to take you by the hand, mm-hmm. right? His job is to shed light and not to master right there was so many one man gathers what another man spills there were these epigrams you know and they'd show up on bumper stickers and t-shirts and all this kind of stuff to remember like shazam like that is that is a cohen mm-hmm. right that is a psychedelic gnostic cohen that guides 
the culture and establishes norms as far as how do we relate to the mystery, mm-hmm. right? And so that's how it used to happen. So even if you just take that as a pop American, relatively modern expression of a, of an initiatory Eleusinian mystery, which Joe Campbell did say, he said, these guys, are, this is just like the Dionysus cults, you know, back in the day, you guys are doing the thing. Like that was his, his commentary going to a Grateful Dead show. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, okay. So at a bare ass minimum, right? We need to dust off some of those psychotechnologies, some of those rituals and handrails, which mm-hmm. is what is a cosmology that serves, right? What are songs, poems, music, art, iconography? How do we hold this? And of course, Burning Man has done something comparable, right? Mm-hmm. The temples, the establishments, like there's clearly an aesthetic. There's clearly a sense of what this is. It looks like sort of fractal alien intelligence deities. Mm-hmm. You know, if you kind of take a look at many of the screens behind a lot of the, a lot of the folks spinning late night, you're sort of like, oh, what is that? Like, what is this? Like, it's actually potentially, and this is a delicate work subject to capture and subject to you know over earnestness and subject to all sorts of potential artistic aesthetic fuck-ups but but fundamentally how do we start um rendering into semi in more semi-durable cultural artifacts that which we're all exploring together because it feels like we're still talking about psychedelics as a substance or as a compound you know that they're either sacramental or they're pharmacological they're whatever and then you go and you have your experience but what i haven't yet seen is really a conversation of kind of mapping a shared cartography of the information layer which appears to you know you get lobbed in there better or worse for more or less hang time, depending on the compounds you combine. Each one tends to specifically tune the radio dial to a certain channel or a certain frequency, but that there may be a superordinate information layer that is the place we're all going and just bungee jumping in and out of with little pinpricks of access. Mm -hmm. Like, can we stop mapping an ontology that actually includes, you know, hyperdimensional or non-3D information layers, realities, interactions. And then can we start actually going from there? Because if we could do that, Mm -hmm. then we have the chance to go from random orthogonal impacts between realms, Mm -hmm. right? They sort of don't know how this works and it's never one-to-one, but it kind of seems to have some diffused, Mm -hmm. hard to predict impacts down here to can we actually connect in some form of stabilized, you know, whether it's group flow, communitas, hive Mm -hmm. mind, take your pick, Mm -hmm. where we're actually, you know, and clearly studies show that that happens in these gathered events like Burning Man, like the Oregon Country Fair, like dead shows where people are like, oh, I just give up having to force anything. I just think a thing and then it happens. And I was looking for you and I didn't, and then I couldn't find you. And then you showed up and you're sitting right beside me like, oh, isn't that funny, right? Those are known issues mm-hmm. in those spaces, mm-hmm. right? Where you get a whole bunch of humans psychologically wired and attuned to some shared focal point in mm-hmm. non-dual space, mm-hmm. right? You, you, get, you get ripples mm-hmm. in 3D causation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I, right. and I'll say that in a parsimonious way, mm-hmm. right? Because <laughs> there's a whole, whole bunch more mm-hmm. wee shit that also happens, right? But we'll just leave that on the shelf for now. So the question mm-hmm. is, is can we potentially stabilize some version of that without losing our wits or our tits, without falling into bed with each other and just, you know, becoming lizard brain fuck monkeys and blissing out on all the amazing? Mm-hmm. Can we actually do this like special operators like galactic Mm -hmm. special forces come and go Mm -hmm. stabilize portals create anchored downlinks Mm -hmm. and actually like power up right as shared shared anthropos Mm -hmm. here at the end of time to save the world just in time with actually the manifest expression of love embodied aho 
I appreciate that. I was thinking communitas so much and also just like how fucking hard it is to cultivate communitas at a time during COVID. So, um, and that was a huge drop. And you also earmarked something at the beginning of this conversation about what gets you out of bed in the morning. And so like orienting towards meaning 3.0. And you've also touched on, you know, orienting towards service as simple as act of kindness and orienting out of individual self into group thinking and being able to actually engage in communitas. And you mentioned hope. So like what are a couple other of these like meaning 3.0 elements that help and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all the same good, good hearted, well-intentioned stuff. It's just with no illusions that any of it's going to matter a bit. That's the Bhagavad Gita bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, there's a reason that the Gita was a seminal text for Emerson, for, for Thoreau, for Gandhi and for, for MLK, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to try and transform the world, there's, all, there's a world of hurt coming for you. And the reason I think that 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 sacred scripture was so seminal for them is like, what happens when the best laid plans of mice and men, including yours, sunny boy, get ripped out of your fucking hands by a cold and indifferent universe? Do you just crumple? right mm-hmm. or do you have some deeper orientation mm-hmm. so the whole die before you die i think really is essential because then you've just got nothing left but hope you've got nothing left but to try and play the you know the infinite game right mm-hmm. for all the marbles but without any bargaining that winning saves me from anything mm-hmm. right so for me like you know sweat your prayers and surf the earth and earn your turns mm-hmm. Right, like go go out and and feed the holy. Like 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 each of those is is a vignette that can keep you engaged for a lifetime, right? But like mountains and rivers without end, you know. Like get out in big wild nature and experience the joys of gravity in an in embody. Mm-hmm. You know that's skiing and surfing and biking, and it could be hiking and bird watching. Like whatever your jam is, mm-hmm. you know, you like to see the world through fresh and focused eyes. And to be a part of the pulses and rhythms, game changing, awesome. And somebody's still got to feed the holy, right? Because like, no, no, no matter how much hurt the world may be feeling, both as the humans upon it and the planet itself, right? It is still popping off 24-7. You know, there's beautiful snowstorms and incredible waves. There's, there's, there's snow to be ridden. There's waves to be carved, right? There's sunrises and sunsets to bear witness to, mm-hmm. to dance over, to pray over, to make love around, like there's big trees to, you know, to go visit, right? Like, like, like we need to honor, right? It's the mm-hmm. whole E.B. White thing, the, the Charlotte's Web guy, right? And, you know, every day I wake up torn between savoring the world and saving it, mm-hmm. you know, but then I realized, right, mm-hmm. that the savoring has to come first mm-hmm. because if there was nothing worth savoring, there would be mm-hmm. nothing left to save. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, right, like you can take it however we want. We could say this is our collective bucket list. Mm -hmm. So like if you, if you know, like, like if you, if there's anything you have loved and appreciated, go back and do it again now while you can. If there's anything you always dreamed or imagined you'd like to go see or be or do one day, go and do it, Mm -hmm. you know, now and shortly, Mm -hmm. because these might be in our hope chests. These might be in our memory boxes. These might be the things that we look back on Mm -hmm. ourselves or get to tell our children, Mm -hmm. right? About one day Mm -hmm. there was like, let's go out and bear witness to the beauty Mm -hmm. of being alive on this earth while we still have the privilege Mm -hmm. and, and, and the opportunity to do so. Mm. And worst case scenario is we're super alive until we die. Right. 
Right. And is that how you sort of grapple with the unanswerable questions of society and the fact that like, oh, we were speaking so much to like the structure of capitalism, but like individually, it feels like we're not really able to take it down. And so that can like lead us down this place of like hopelessness. Is your advice that you just offered, like how you personally grapple with the fact that you individually can't really do anything about the system? Or do you feel like you can? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think systems are pretty big. Um, and I think that's actually probably one of the hubris, bits of hubris and slight delusion, even of many people I know and love. And again, once again, even if I don't agree with their Dahmer, I hope they, I hope that this works for them. You know, like, like I don't, I wouldn't bet don't bet on that horse, but I sure as hope it crosses the finish line, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, no, I, I think that for what, I mean, and, you know, in Glasgow and COP26 were kind of my last ditch, super secret fingers crossed, you know, <laughs> look at it between my eyes, this hope to God, something interesting or novel emerges and it actually went backwards. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh, no, we're still doing the fucking stupid human thing. Um, so no, I, I think we are structurally super duper fucked. And all that really means is, we we aren't even close to acting in the absence of much much more pain mm -hmm. just on a kind of just clinical level you're like oh okay there's not enough input in the system to prompt changing from the status quo piece there's too many people still getting their bread buttered this way mm -hmm. for anybody to turn it off right now or yet mm -hmm. and the capacity of our OODA loops right the fact that the only two decision making apparatus apparati we have are you know, money and power, AKA the markets, mm -hmm. you know, the financial markets and government. And both of those OODA loops are either, you know, everything from day trading to quarterly stock market signals, you know, mm -hmm. once every three months or two year, really two year election cycles, but four if you stretch it. So there's no overlapping between branches of government. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, is that you probably have 18 months max. And we're, we, you know, we've seen this with this insta lame duck presidency with biden but you know like poor bastard had like 18 months to try and do something and he's already out of time <laughs> and he's going to lose control of congress and then they're really going to fuck him and stonewall things if they weren't already and that's going to create a highly highly likely switch slash revert back to populist conservatism in 24 and wouldn't you know it we're going to be a decade underwater at a time we should have been paddling like motherfuckers mm -hmm. so you're just like okay those are those are the oodle loops you know, three months and, and, and 24 months, and they don't work very well with things that take decades to centuries to either fuck up or fix. Right, right. Hearing you say this, Jamie, makes me want to drop a tab of acid and just go get lost in the forest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, no, I mean, honestly, like, I, I'd say that's way more valuable than like your 1% personal growth pitch. You know, I'll, I'll take, I'll take get lost, get lost in the forest on acid any day. Yeah. Um, so, so the point being, though, is is the um, the feed the holy, mm -hmm. right? And that's Martin Prechtel's term, uh, you know, a Mayan elder and poet, super wise, mm -hmm. badass fellow. But like he tells the story of the Mayan tradition where basically it's just, a, it, it accounts for the Western, the Judeo-Christian notion of original sin. It's like, mm -hmm. look, we've always taken, like we have to, we have to take to live, right? We chop down trees for our homes and we hunt animals for our, for our food. And that, that's not necessarily wrong. It just is a, it, it's the cost of us being here and being alive. So the way we balance that is not to wring our hands and say that we're broken or, or, or fallible or sinful, right? The way to rebalance that ledger is to feed the holy, 
right? It is to put cornmeal in beautiful mandalas and to put and to arrange petals there and to sing a song when the sun comes up and to thank it for shining that day as well, mm -hmm. right? We, we reintroduce beauty to balance our extraction and mm -hmm. our footprint. Mm -hmm. And that is so much better than the kind of crypto Puritan guilty liberal you know, always trying to atone for the things that weren't ours, you know, that, that kind of like, I don't really deserve all of this largesse, but I'll still take it. I'll just feel bad about it and drive a Prius, you know, like that. Right. Wait, and, wait, and, are you right? saying so, that, that you're, you're, you don't think crypto is going to save us, Jamie? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I've got some friends that are super bullish, but I mean, I'm sure they may be a little less bullish after this last week. Um, so, um, I mean, you do notice, right? The number of crypto-backed utopian projects, the hundred percent rises and falls with the value of Bitcoin and ETH. You know, you're like, and then they just go quiet over those over those bear runs. You're like, where'd you go? What happened about saving the world, bro? And you're like, now I'm just watching my NFTs. I'm watching my board ape. You know, so hoping mm -hmm. it still goes up. Um, so. My sense is, is look, if people want to do something specific, so feeding the holy is a beautiful concept, it's mm -hmm. potentially profound, and I would say it's, it's one to like go deeper on, right? The idea of it's on us, this goes back to the Kevin Kelly thing, right? It's on us to rail against the second law of thermodynamics and make art, right? Like make things mm -hmm. that are improbable organizations of matter, you know, and the making art can be raising a family really, really well. It could be a square foot garden in your backyard. It could be a soup kitchen. It could be a painting. It could be music. It could be whatever. It doesn't, you know, it could be an entrepreneurial project, just like rail against entropy and decay. Mm -hmm. um, but a really specific one where, you know, back to the Bhagavad Gita and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't do it anyway, mm -hmm. right? On the one hand, we can be totally aware and we should be aware that recycling is a total sham and plastics don't go anywhere, but landfills in China, now they're not going to landfills in China. So they're going to landfills in Laos and Vietnam. And they're all ending up in the giant Pacific garbage patch. Sorry, kids, right? That one was pulled, that wool was pulled over our eyes by the plastic industry 25 years ago. And if you ever wondered why your friendly, you know, neighborhood garbage man suddenly stopped making us separate all those fucking bottles that we used to when we were little. And then now it's just fine. Just chuck them all in together. Well, that's why, right? They're going to a farm upstate, kid. You know, like mm -hmm. they're not actually getting adopted. They're, they're you know, like that whole disillusionment mm -hmm. with playing our pot, reduce, mm -hmm. reuse, recycle. But on the other hand, there is something called the two kilowatt society, right? And they are based out of Switzerland and they've got a presence in Europe. And their, their whole premise is can I reduce my annual consumption to two kilowatts uh, a year um, on a sort of an annualized basis? Um, because that would be enough for all humans to be having some kind of stabilized, you know, energy consumption. Mm -hmm. And for baselines, I think that Europe are like at eight, eight kilowatts and U.S. unsurprisingly up at 12. Mm -hmm. So it'd be, you know, but what's interesting is when cities in Europe have committed to that, they have, and then they've measured quality of life. They've actually found that the people who are subscribing to it are actually happier, less stressed, better sleep, more overall life satisfaction, tighter families, et cetera, et cetera, better health indexes, all these kind of things. So their premise was, can we demonstrate, not can we fix the world by doing this, but can we just show it's possible and can we show, in fact, that it doesn't require a degradation in these cherished Western standards of living? Can we actually be, you know, be a lamp into others kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So, like, if we wanted to, and that's, you know, in our building of our little off-grid cabin, like, we are 100% moving to that ourselves as a family, not because we're under the illusion that that does something like, you know, separating our plastics, mm -hmm. right? It's simply to say, because we could, we ought to. Mm -hmm. And then check that box and then get back to, right, whatever frontline efforts, 
right? Whatever else there is, wherever else someone can be helpful of service or pleasant distraction and then go play our parts. Mm-hmm. With the help of your local meditation app. Yeah, called like the big Sitka spruce, you know, <laughs> out on the back porch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, I so appreciate it. It's almost like a, a little dose of nihilism is like a little bit helpful just in the grand scheme of things that like, oh, the earth is going to be swallowed whole by the sun in a few hundreds of millions of years. And we have such a brief moment on this planet and we happen to be conscious and we really get to decide what we do during this very brief window of time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, and it's and something I read about in the book, but it was it's the coming alive arc of life versus the staying alive mm-hmm. arc, right? The coming alive goes high into the right and it's infinite possibilities. And then the staying alive arc is like, oh, it's triage. Like we might be running out of time and you might have to, you know, like, am I packing? Am I planning my next amazing vacation, you know, or am I packing a bug out bag? Mm-hmm. Which is it? You know, which is it? And the, the schizophrenic <laughs> toggling yeah. is getting higher and higher, mm-hmm. right? And people are even having those experiences in psychedelic space, right? Because mm-hmm. typically there's a known effect called a scatesthesia, which is a sense of the impending end of time, mm-hmm. right? And that typically, I mean, there's a reason that that, was, that term has been coined in the psychedelic space because it shows up so often. Mm-hmm. So somebody can be like, oh my gosh, I am a child of light or of God and I am whole and perfect and worthy of love. And I've seen the end of time and it all works out. And then we get spat back out in the 3D like, oh shit, mm-hmm. are we going to make it? Mm-hmm. Do we have time? Does this work? Or are we going to be in civil war in a year or two? Or is my you know state evacuated for natural disasters or, or, or? Mm-hmm. And that is a that is such a profound but also destabilizing position that I don't think we should be sending people into that realization Mm -hmm. unsupported, Mm -hmm. right? Because the idea is sort of like good news is, you know, it's like unplugging people from the matrix, right? Like you can learn Kung Fu and you can fly like Superman. Like, yay, this is awesome. And like bad news is the machines are coming tomorrow night and they're drilling through and it's like, this is the last night in Zion. Mm-hmm. So, so the, and that's what I mean about it's no longer adequate for to just the 1% micro personal yeah. growth for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, we might be at this weird stage in history where it's like, oh, we've been gifted with more transformational initiatory tools than any human civilization has ever had in such an open source decentralized you know, democratically accessible way ever, period, full stop. Mm-hmm. Outside priest classes, nominal shaman groups, et cetera, right? Never has everybody had a crack at this the way we have with no training or preparation. But maybe if we do assign any overarching intelligence or direction to any of this stuff, and that's a big if, right? Then perhaps it's to boot up as many humans as possible, right? Into right? Soldiers of light into Shambhala warriors as fucking possible, which means you get a long weekend honeymoon, you know, like soak it in, (laughs) bask in the glory and report to the front lines on Monday. You're fucking well needed. And don't forget, there's no, there's no, there's no AWOL slipping off the front lines Mm -hmm. to go back to the wishing well. Mm -hmm. When you heard that Chogim had accusations because you just men- mentioned Shambhala and we're exploring the full spectrum of what it means to be human. Like, did that just like tarnish your, like, do you hold the perspective of like, well, don't throw the baby out with the bath- bathwater. That man downloaded a serious amount of wisdom. Or do you think like, wow, well, we're just all human and he's human too. 
Well, I mean, I mean, I actually had some mild discussion with what's his name, Matthew Remsky, I think wrote the article. He's part of that conspirituality podcast, but he also, I think, wrote the article for the magazine Walrus that that came out in. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, it was a less productive conversation than I was hoping for. But um, the, the intention, I think, is really legit inquiry, which is you take an Adida, who was another wild and crazy, you could throw in Osho mostly just because people know of him from Wild mm-hmm. Country, but that was a pretty mm-hmm. flat documentary. It didn't get into the actual misto of Osho himself um, or someone like a Trungpa. And you're like, okay, net, net. Were they positive? That Was it better or worse that they ever walked the earth for humanity? right? Including all the abuses, including all the excesses, mm-hmm. including anything else that happened, the collateral damage for some of the people that were around them, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the later stages of their careers as things tended to get predictably squishy. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you take it as the, from the trauma anti-cult side, then you have a, it's a hell no. All of that's rationalizations, gaslighting, mm-hmm. excluding. Right. If you pan back a little on you're like, okay, those guys were pushing the envelope of human consciousness. There was all sorts of collateral damage, no bones about it. And right. Did that in some way lead to something either ephemeral or semi-stable that is seed code that can be built on more helpfully or wholesomely over time. The same, you know, you take Alistair Crowley as another example, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Alistair Crowley has a direct lineage connection to Jack Parsons at Jet Propulsion Labs and what's his face? L. Ron Hubbard, founder of Scientology, <laughs> right? <laughs> and directly informed Tim Leary and Robert Anton Wilson. Mm-hmm. And those guys cleaned it up quite a bit, mm-hmm. right? The, the, especially Anton Wilson, right? And so, and then you get a much, you still direct lineage is still 100% mm-hmm. informed by what was much, le- much more volatile and less safe. And it starts becoming something mm-hmm. new and different, right? Mm-hmm. You can still see the shock waves throughout um, the, you know, spiritual communities, et cetera, from Adidas transmissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Trungpa absolutely laid down some um, define, you know, definitively and enduringly mm-hmm. beautiful and important distinctions, especially in the first half of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's a, both an inquiry into what happens in crazy wisdom and why do, why do teachers consistently get bent, even if they showed signs of incredible mm-hmm. talent, gift, insight, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as they got cracking. And mm-hmm. then also, what is the ledger, mm-hmm. you know, from a sort of effective altruist perspective mm-hmm. on um, harm benefit? Yeah. And is there anything to rationalize or justify it? I mean, I think the, there's a huge questions of consent, because it's one thing if mm-hmm. a knowing adept goes and plays with fire and gets burnt, like John Lilly. Right. There was minimal collateral damage outside his immediate family, outside his wives and potentially children and that kind of stuff to what the experiments he conducted. Right. It's much weirder when you start getting into followers, groupies, you know, Mm -hmm. anybody with cultic tendencies where full consent may not have been there. So to Mm -hmm. say, oh, well, that was knowing collateral damage. They Mm -hmm. knew what they were getting into is, you know, up for debate, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if you have, you know, I think in some respects, like if you for me, at least Mm -hmm. minus the cultic tendencies. So just back out all those for a sec. Um, I would say the most helpful frame on this is looking at it like big wave surfing and, and, and high altitude mountaineering, which is the best sometimes die. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they were wrong. It doesn't mean the mountains were, or the ocean was bad. Right. Um, it's just, you roll the dice in those high stakes terrain often enough and 
from time to time, you'll come up snake eyes. Now, there's always after action reviews in those communities, the same way there are with special operations communities and pilots as well, right? Like the big thing is when somebody dies, the question is, is was that a pilot error or was this just Kali, you know, and your number got punched? Mm-hmm. And, and the question is really important in those communities because if it was pilot error, then they can say, oh, see, well, that was his fuck up and I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm which may or may not be true, right? But that is the, that is, that is the psychodynamic of it, mm-hmm. right? And so the question for all of us is not to say, if anybody comes a cropper pursuing being a psychonaut, let's just say, we'll keep it focused on the topic you know, for your, for your show. Um, do you then use that as a chance to clutch pearls and wring hands and morally tut tut about the nature of the pursuit? Or do you say, hey man, this is, this is, this is time in the death zone and or right in riding giants and Mm -hmm. and and the people who get into it damn well ought to know Mm -hmm. what they're getting into and sometimes there are fallen fallen warriors Mm -hmm. as a result Mm -hmm. in terms of chogyam trumpa you know that lineage the shambhala lineage has greatly informed and changed my life in such a profound way, mostly through the teaching of Pema Chodron, who is like, as you said, you know, it's like the next people in the lineage that it gets passed on to, they refine it in different ways and hold it in different ways. So I absolutely think not to throw out all the wisdom teachings because one person did something that was not in an integrity and that there's such a bigger perspective. And that's kind of the same thing that I think about the psychedelic movement. I have this conversation with people all the time. I absolutely believe that there's collateral damage happening in the psychedelic movement right now. And yet on the whole, do I think it's positive and moving in a good direction for the support of change and to help catalyze much needed change in the midst of so much larger transition, but like letting go of old systems and the rigidity of ways that don't serve us anymore that we know, like, do I think that the, the overall movement is really helpful? Yeah, I do think it's going in an overall direction that we do have a lot of responsibility to steer. And so I know this is coming full circle back to all of the things that we're talking about and maybe where we differ a little bit, but I do think that we hold an enormous amount of responsibility in this in this space and also to reduce collateral damage because we hear stories all the time. Can't even tell you how many stories I've heard at this point of women being raped by shamans. There's all sorts of charlatans happening from North America down to South America, including South America. So we do have to be super careful. But overall, do I think that more people, I mean, I'm curious, have you ever had this experience like on LSD where you really genuinely thought to yourself, wow, if a lot more people had this experience that maybe we would come to know peace and love on earth? Mm. Um. I mean, no, no, not at all, never. Um, but only because, like, I mean, you. you it doesn't mean I'm, I mean usually because I'm just like gobsmacked at what's actually coming down the pipes, you know, in real time. I'm not like, oh, gee, what's a future date? Wouldn't that be really cool if a bunch of other people had their mind blown wide open to the back of beyond? No, because um, there's no there, there's no one there to actually have that thought. So, um, no, I mean, look, I mean, was it was it Marilyn Monroe and Claire Booth Luce and the various other you know glitterati of the late '50s and the early '60s who were trying to hatch a way to get it? to JFK in the White House. I mean, you know, like that experiment has been conducted um, and at, le- at least attempted, uh, you know, as was Abby Hoffman's attempt to levitate the Pentagon as, a, you know, as the kind of funny prank, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we've done that. Um, doesn't mean we couldn't continue to try it. But once again, I mean, I think um, what you and I are poking at, right, like we're coming at it from a bunch of different angles is basically two fundamentally different worldviews as to the nature of human, the nature of human nature. 
And, and I just came across this distinction recently, which I thought was super helpful because it shows up in crypto, it shows up in the psychedelic space, it shows up in any semi-utopian project we're discussing right now is who do we, who do we think humans are really mm. deep down and unconstrained? And so there is literally a model, the constrained versus the unconstrained theory of human nature. And the constrained is literally Hobbes, like last, not life is nasty, brutish and short, right? And the best thing you can do is actually create governance and structures and systems that minimize how shitty people can be to themselves and each other. Mm-hmm. And then you might have a chance at free, at free will. At least people will get to choose in that system, but you've, you've limited the downside risk mm-hmm. of people being shitty because mm-hmm. they often will be. And then there's the unconstrained vision, which is kind of embodied by Rousseau, Tabula Rasa, blank slates, indefinite upsides and possibilities. <clears throat> and, and theirs is, is that, you know, can we arrange systems and structures to maximize the opportunity for human flourishing and becoming, right? And so quite often they will say, so these guys, the constrained will say, you're never going to get to full equality, love and joy, but you can minimize the downsides via free will and choice. And that's probably going to be net net about as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. And then the unconstrained is like, oh, no, humans can be everything and we'll save the life, the world and each other if we can only and, and equality, even if it requires tops down control to assert that is actually the higher and better good. Mm-hmm. And so fundamentally, I would say I am in in the culture architecture camp, like how do you design stuff or how do you even critique or assess what's going on? I, I'm in the constrained camp. I'm like left to their own devices. Most people do kind of shitty things. They seek pleasure and they avoid pain, right? And that will often leave you really quite bummed out to the outcomes Mm -hmm. of people stepping up to the better angels of their nature. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the actual Gnostic initiatory experience gives us all glimpses of our truest, highest, fullest, bestest selves. And that's profoundly beautiful and affirming. Mm -hmm. Right? So, you know, I mean, I think John Lennon embodied it perfectly. He said, I love humanity right? The unconstrained version. It's the fucking people I can't stand, right? The constrained version. So we're dancing between these two. Mm -hmm. And especially as as we lay over, well, what are the pitfalls and potentials of the psychedelic renaissance again, or cryptocurrency and web three or whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to lay over this, the question is, is what do we think is the fundamental nature of human nature? And therefore, what ought we do? Are we attempting to mitigate downsides and then allow whatever itsy bitsy flourishing can cobble itself together for a period of time to happen to happen? Or are we getting rid of all the obstructions to allow the blossoming? And of course, keep in mind that like unconstrained versions led to Stalin and led to Mao as well, mm-hmm. right? They're, 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 it sounds good up front mm-hmm. and potentially gets murderous on the back end. Because if, if the ends are heaven on earth, then the means are always justified. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of, these are the sort of philosophical, you know, guardrails mm-hmm. that we're sort of dancing between as we explore what, well, sprinkle in a little magic psychedelic pixie dust <laughs> to that, what do we think happens? Right. right. Everything. Everything happens. All the things, man. All, all the, the things. things. <laughs> An amplification of all of the things. I so appreciate you, Jamie. It's really a pleasure and thank you for um, being willing to wrestle some of these topics to the ground and just being able to get into it. You know, it's like, it's like people listening, you know, it's not like anyone has the answer here, but it is really fun to come at it from a lot of different angles and sort of bounce some of these nuanced, very tricky topics around and just kind of see what new insights want to emerge and evolve. So I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, the get out of bed answer is literally stay awake, build stuff, help out. 
-hmm. right? Like remember the things we're shown, like create because it's fun to, and it's why we've got opposable thumbs. And it's the, pretty much the only thing that humans can do, right? And help out because if you are doing your best to stay awake and you are creating and building, mm -hmm. then share those things mm -hmm. with other people. Mm -hmm. I'd love to bring you on for a second part of this conversation at some point where we can really get into more of that intentional design, you know, lifestyle design, where we can actually live into meaning 3.0. But I'll, I'll have to um, hassle your assistant to get on your calendar probably in a few months from now. <laughs> yeah, in the meantime, I'm going backcountry skiing. Got oh, to feed the holy. Got to earn my tens. Got to do all the good things. I appreciate that perspective. Thank you so much, Jamie. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah, Thank for sure. you. Be well. Bye. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. I'm so thrilled to be back with a whole new season. And with this season, we've launched a whole new website. And each episode has a beautiful landing page where I'm linking to all the resources mentioned, full transcript, featured musician. It's all there. So please go check out this episode at lauradawn.co forward slash 42. If you'd like to be in touch with me, you can send me an email through my website, lauradon.co, or send me a message on Instagram at livefreelauraD. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. I'm so grateful to have about 70 five-star reviews, and they really do help. They help make a difference, and I would love to reach 100 five-star reviews. So thank you so much for your help with that. I genuinely so appreciate it. And I'm going to leave you with this song called Chosen Ones by my dear sister, Mary Isis. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. Shall grow more.
connected to life with every waking day conscious loving awareness is the game i choose to play to inspire take me higher from my sorrows and pain to help me see the reality that only love remains we are intentionally living for the gifts that we've been given sourcing our power from within dancing to creation's rhythm the more i expand to perceive the nature of reality the more i see my life unfolding in perfect harmony Inspire this sacred ceremony.